podiobooks.com, an association with pjballantine.net and writersexchange.com, presents Weaver's Web, written and read by Philippa Ballantyne. As she may dress carefully, her hands shaking on the buttons and ties required. Sending away the dresses that had fussed about her had been a rash decision. She'd chosen a simple black tunic and trues, with no hint of any clan colours or ducal seal. At first she'd been tempted to wear an elegant gown, like she had before, something to rival the court beauties with its finery, but had, in the end, decided against it. The odd few that might find it hard to be led by a woman would not appreciate her emphasising her femininity. They must see her as she was, or hoped to be. Strong, independent of any clan affiliation, and most of all, in control. She'd spent an uneasy night. Of all those that had passed since Garen's betrayal, this had been the worst. Strangely, he had not been featured in any of the dreams that plagued her. The hard cold of the mountains had been about her, and the blinding snow she recalled from her previous journey there. The entire world in such a place was constricted to a few feet. In the dream, it was silent and dreadful. Her friends, coated in blood, scrambled to grasp her, but then were pulled away by unseen forces. Her numb hands struggled to hold on to them, but failed. Only Murick, his dark eyes seemingly bottomless, tried to communicate with her. She managed to hold him the longest. His mouth worked frantically, trying to tell her something, but his voice was so distant that she couldn't make out the words, and then he too was whisked away. She had awakened with her hands and feet freezing, her mind disturbed. She had seen so much strangeness in her life that she could not easily put the dream from her. What could she do? Her mind worked itself into tight little circles, trying to think of a way that she could help them. They had to be in trouble. But the weavers were drawing down on them, and the moot. That damned moot! The sharp rap on the door made her jump, her hand reaching for a sword that was not yet buckled on. Come in. Her voice didn't betray the whirl of her thoughts. Damon eased open the door. He was a brilliant contrast to her. His steel-grey hair was swept up in a knot that only a chieftain could wear, and he wore the full regalia of his title. The brilliant red and gold lace of the mountain clan suited him well, she decided. All this she took in while he scanned her in a similar manner. Your hair! You're entitled to... I'm entitled to nothing here, she said, pulling its curls about her shoulders, the only badge she wore. Not yet. Not until the chiefs recognised me as High Chief. I thought it would be better not to presume. He inclined his head. A clever thought, Ashimi. Perhaps we will make something of you yet. Are they assembled? All that can fit into the inner ward. Only about three quarters of what should be there. Lou has just arrived with more godlings and mothers than I'd ever seen. Divine home must be emptied. Turning to the bed, Ashimi buckled on the sword of her father, feeling its familiar weight settle on her a bit. Then let us go, Lord Damon. Through the deserted corridors they went. Even the servants were gathered, waiting. The guards held their post, and the rest of Skellig for them. Their feet echoed along the stone, and each step seemed to hammer in her head. The last moot she'd been at had been as Geron's lover and his messenger. Now the mother alone knew where he was, and she would speak her first words to the hundreds assembled. 
They crossed the knife edge of rock that was all that connected the inner to the outer wards. Ashimay peered over the rim of the fragile-looking wall, feeling the wind from below stir her hair. The ocean howled as it battered against the pale rock. The kiss of the salt wind was on her cheek. This, too, might have to be put to use should Skellig be overrun. A leader must think of such things. And now came the inner ward. Unused to the tramp of mailed boots on its softer corridors, rich tapestries and rugs. Such luxuries would be few, as she may knew, in the days to come. Towards the garden they strode. It had been built for this purpose, and was the gentle soul to the stone heart of Skellig. And it was also the place where she'd lost her head to the rage on learning of Geron's betrayal. Six high arches led into the garden, to number the same as the preeminent clans that had been when Skellig was built in the time of the Furlions. Of those six, only one remained. The rest were lost to history. Out of their recesses, her grandfather stepped, shadows running in dark rivers down each wrinkle and crease in his beloved face. He was old, she saw. The figure of her childhood was not invincible. There was a measured span to his life and hers. An unchangeable fear gripped her. Holding her gaze, Allegre took her hand in his, and she could feel the hardness that years of battle and rule had given to him. Gently he slipped off the heavy gold ring given to her by Geron in all those years of love. She let him. Tucking it away in his own pocket, he replaced it with a thin ribbon of silver that she had only ever seen before on her uncle's finger. The flat top of the ring bore the stamp of the Lord of the Deep. It was the heir's ring, and even older than Skellig. One day it would be matched by the signet ring that for now Allegre wore. In an unexpected gesture, he drew her into a stiff embrace. You were always more than his lover, child. I hope you can remember that, and find yourself again. Kissing his hard old cheek, she pulled away gently. I will try, Grandfather. Leaving them standing at the doorway, Ashimay went alone to the moot. Looking neither right nor left, she trod the ancient stones to the fountain. The only sound in the huge garden was its merry ripple of water. Carefully, she drew no attention to herself. There was no banging of drums or sounding of horns. The people waited for her, completely silent. Only when she reached the main fountain did she turn. The moot was older than Skellig, older than Crisfell. An ancient tradition, it was all that remained of the time when tribe and clan warred against each other. It had been the only moment when all differences were forgotten. It was a tension-filled event, even for the Dukes of Crisfell. There was always the possibility that they might rise up against their leaders. So the Duke or Count always came quietly to such a gathering until the time of decision was passed. Ashimay raised her head, letting the early morning sunlight touch her face before opening her eyes. The whole of the island watched. Little knots of kith and kin were drawn together by uncertainty, all looking to her for answers. The court, city and countryside all waited for her to speak. In the far corner was the scarlet wolves and all their finery, her friend's gift to this moot. A sombre group of purple and green-robed godlings and mothers ranged against the far wall. Connor and Jerris were close at hand, beaming their strength at her. She could spare them no returning smile. Afterwards, she'd be unable to recall the words, but she would always hold on to the meaning that she tried to convey. Frankly, she told her people of what had befallen the outer islands. All could see the ragtag bunch of Clan Dunleary that was all that it endured of that tribe. Perhaps they had already spread the story. 
When she was done, Ashy may turned to Connor, who was standing in the shade of an ancient tree that must have been here before Skellig. Jerris stood at his side, wearing his glorious male form, ash blonde and wheat golden in his eye. They only served to strengthen Ashimay's resolve. It was then that Clan spoke, telling her things that she didn't want to hear, things that had happened while she was away. Odd incidents had been occurring all over the island, shepherds disappearing from their flocks, children stolen from their cribs. Sometimes even a small village would be found empty, its doors banging in the wind. The description settled her heart in ice, reminding her too much of Dunleary. And no one had heard from the Highland clans at all. It was no wonder there were so few of them here. Some were missing, some too afraid to venture from their homes even to obey the powerful call of the moot. We must prepare to defend Skellig, she said. For these weavers are coming, if they are not already here. They have some purpose for us in Crisfell, and we must work together to make sure whatever it is, it doesn't happen. And we will help you. A ripple of silence followed in Lou's wake as he made his way towards her. His eyes were dark and shadowed, and his stance weary. His hand caught hers, fingers wrapping around the new ring she wore. She surreptitiously loaned him some of her strength as he stood shoulder to shoulder with her. Only once before have the mothers and the godlings taken part in the affairs of the earthly realm. Never again was the pledge made after. During the dark time, clans warred with clans, and the divine chose the Furlions to end all that. But this is different. The divine home has decided to put away that pledge before the danger we face. The divine has spoken to us all and told us to defend Skellig and follow Ashime. And so we will, to the death. She trembled at the very thought of the power that lay before her, the might of every godling and mother in Crisfell. Though they only acted before as advisers and teachers, she understood the powers they wielded. Garin would have exploded with rage. Here they were, offering her this gift on a platter that he'd been begging for years for. Not only Garin had begged for it, but also all of his ancestors before. In her hand lay the sword of the divine, and surely now the chiefs could not oppose her. Heads spinning, eyes flashing, as she may looked up, Surely the voice that boomed out could not be hers. By right of blood, might, and need, I call to be High Chief of Crisfell and her leader in the coming battle. Could they not hear it? The triumphant scream of her father's weaver's blood in her? If they did, all could be undone. She fought hard to keep the light from about her. Who will deny me? This was the moment that all leaders wore their swords to the moot for. She stood before them, all of Crisfell, and any could challenge her. Single combat to the death. Part of her wanted someone to stand forth. Where was the young, hot-blooded lord of the Marakai who had once cornered her in Skellig's dark corridors? Where now the disdainful, crook-nosed face of the lord of Mianga, who often looked down at her as merely the duke's strumpet? Step forth, her heart whispered, emboldened by weaver strength. All the while, the same part of her cowered. Luckily, they could not see the struggle in her. Lord Damon was making his way toward her, all eyes in the moot fixed on his rigid back. For a heart-stopping instant, he paused there, looking up at her with these cold, grey eyes. Could she have been wrong about him? Then, in a swift gesture, he took her hand. In this life... 
and the next. Your word, honour and command is mine. His deep voice echoed around the garden while he clasped her trembling hand to his head and heart. With one gesture it was sealed and completed. The next few hours of the oath-taking passed in a blur. Between Damon and Lou it had been accomplished, when she had half expected to end the day with a sword in her back. All the while, as each chief pledged himself, she fought to keep rage at bay. This was something she shared with no one. Her father's bane before had only crept up on her on battle, and she had fought all her life to maintain it there, mostly succeeding. But since the weavers had taken her, it was like they had planted a seed of rebellion in it. Practically each moment was a struggle to maintain control. She was naturally terrified, and each acceptance of oath only compounded the lie. But what else could she do? Over each head she felt Jerris's eyes on her. As always, there was no hiding anything from it. The link between them had only grown since Dunleary. It was now as close to her as one of her own limbs. She overheard their conversation. Look about you, Connor said to Jerris. How could she possibly fail with all these people behind her? Have you never studied the history of Crisfell? Jerris shook his head with a sad smile. Ah, Connor, now the real work begins. Out of the corner of one eye, as she may caught sight of an approaching young boy. He stood, standing, twisting his tunic in two damp hands. She could smell him from here. The smell was hay and fetid manure. He was obviously a stable boy, and just as obviously out of his element. Jerris, seeing the young boy in trouble, guided him over to Ashimad. Ash, I think this lad has something to tell you. The stable boy almost bolted when the high chief turned her attention to him. Jerris gave him an encouraging pat, and he blurted out his message. One of the ponies! Your friends rode out on us. Come back, my lady. The stable says the, st the stable master sent me to get you. The poor thing's awfully hurt. He... Cold-faced, Ashimad dismissed the remaining trivial business directing the other chief's questions to Damon. Lou, may I ask? Of course, my dear. I'll help what I can. Jerris and Connor fell into step behind her as she made for the stable. Along the way, she skillfully pulled all the information she could from the stunned lad. Only the one pony had returned, thin and tired this morning. He had no saddles or bags on him, but his bridle was intact. Through the bailey they went, past the bustle of preparations, dodging carts loaded with grain and other provisions. Oftentimes people pulled aside or bowed to their new high chief, and she managed a smile or a nod of recognition, but it seemed like an eternity until they reached the stables. Ashimay swallowed a stiff lump in her throat. This was where she'd last seen her friends. The little group at the lad's directions made for the rear of the lofty stable. The one-eyed, heavily-whiskered stablemaster waited for them. Under his hand was a trembling pony that looked vaguely familiar to Ashimay. A damp sackcloth lay across its side, Wordlessly, she approached it, hoping against hope. A hand passed over the emaciated rump confirmed it. This was the dun pony Guston had been riding. Her companions made a little half-circle about the poor beast. It didn't even have the strength to raise its head. "'What's happened to him?' Ashima asked, her heart heavy. "'What hasn't?' The stablemaster's voice was rough with emotion to see a beast so wounded. "'He's got frostbite. He hasn't been fed in many days, and to top it all off, there's this!' He lifted the sackcloth. Three long burns ran down its wither, broad near the neck, tapering off towards the shoulder blade, as if three flaming torches had been applied to its hide. I've never seen anything like it. Eshime held her hand to her mouth. 
What could do this? Connor said, his brow furrowing. One doesn't like to think. Lou ran a hand over the poor animal's head. This creature must have a strong will to have survived whatever did this. Can you see anything, father? The stable master asked. Lou cocked his head. He lightly touched the pony's shoulder, his eyes becoming glazed. I feel the weight of a rider, the blinding white of snow. There must have been some sort of storm. The others are nearby. Something else. I can smell its power. Bright light and pain. My rider falls. Then I run. I run. Lou stepped back, shaking and rubbing his temple vigorously, trying to dispel the last of the memory. Can he see it properly? Perhaps I could. Jerris reached out too. The pony's head came up sharply, its nostrils flaring. Giving a sharp whinny, it spun around, aiming its stout little legs in Jerris's direction. Easy, boy, easy! The stable master whispered into its ear. Interesting, Lou mused. Interesting? Mother, help me! As she may snapped, her jaw and fist clenched. The creature knows the smell of weavers! Her face closed over hard, thinking furiously. Rounding on the godling, she said, How many of Clan Lister are up there? I didn't know for sure. You'd have to ask Lord Damon. But I would guess a hundred, maybe two. No one would ever be able to accuse Eshimei of being indecisive. Right then. She spun and left the stable. Connor shook his head in amazement. Now that should get interesting. Interesting is not usually good, Jerris observed dryly but he followed Connor and Lou out into the bailey. A knot of burly-looking men had already gathered around Eshimei's dark form, leaving only her copper hair visible. Lou shook his head in dismay. I shudder to think what she's up to now. They waited. It was either that or try and shove their way through the throng. Connor leaned against the chill stone of Skellig, while Juris and Lou fretted. Unlike them, he was unconcerned. Nothing that he'd seen of this woman had caused him to fear, yet... She seemed touched by the divine. No one else that he'd ever known had survived falling off a bridge or being swept away by an underground river. Wherever she led, he would follow. Whatever she asked, he would do. Jerris heard his thoughts, and he wished somehow that he could share the young Sitken's view. It's decided, as she may separated from the group of men. Now they could recognise the badges they all wore and the red lace. Of course, Jerris realised, the scarlet wolves. As she may had her arms up behind her head, already busy tying a simple war braid into her hair. We're going into the mountains. Her green eyes speared them. Well, aren't you going to say something? Her three companions exchanged exasperated looks. When do we leave? They asked, almost in chorus. When Ashimei's father had insisted on naming her after the boiling flame of morning, he must have helped cast her character, Jerris decided, watching her give her last orders to the chiefs. All were together here except the Marakai. Their beautiful ships would be needed to control Skellig's harbour. The largest contingents of mothers would go with them, just in case they came across any stray weavers. They would be spread among the ships, not only for protection against the weavers, but also to give them spiritual means of communication. Lord Damon was travelling into the mountains with them, determined to find out the fate of his clan. The story of the pony had visibly unnerved him, just when they'd begin to think he was unshakable. Fifty of the most ready wolves were to travel with them, they had the scent of battle in their nostrils, and they packed with urgency. Ashimei found herself in the midst of them, laughing despite the circumstances, as they barraged her with shared stories and experiences. At least they didn't hold her accountable for the dissolution of the unit. Many had changed, 
but there was a reassurance to familiar faces. The stable master had no shortage of fine ponies for them, since the clan's people had bought everything with them. He was even able to supply them with remounts. In the mountains, anything could happen. Jerris had a little bay, Connor a speckled grey, while Lou argued with a stroppy-looking gelding. Now this is more like it, Connor said, throwing a practiced leg over the back of his mount. No more of those unpredictable ships. We sit can a horse people, you know. Jerris stayed very still on its mount. I have heard, but I'm not so sure that I am. If I spent the rest of my life on the ground, it would be fine by me. I thoroughly agree. Lou managed to get his horse to sidle up next to the other two. If it wasn't Solicitor up there, I'm afraid I'd be staying put in Skellig. But it's a godling's place to watch out over the mothers. They depend on us, you know. This last bit was said in a half-whisper, with a quick glance over one shoulder. Luckily, no mothers were about to overhear. You three all right? Ashimay was bundled in heavy dark fur, her bright hair making a startling contrast atop it. Her eye travelled doubtfully over Jerris and Lou. I hope you aren't going to cause any trouble on this trip. Speed is essential, you know. Jerris tried to look as confident as possible. Well, we'll be fine. Yes, fine, Connor chorused, giving her a broad wink. Sliding a hand under the girth of Jerris's mount, she made sure it was tight. Looking up, she gave it a reassuring smile and a pat on the leg. Its usual enigmatic facade slipped a little. She hoped she wasn't leading what would be the last of her friends into further danger. While she was staring into the concerned amber eyes, it shifted to masculine. Odd how those changes no longer disturbed her. Indeed, his powerful maleness attracted her. Her grandfather's words echoed in her head. Would her mind and body never obey her? Perhaps the power of the weavers had weakened her, as if in reminder the rage twisted inside, making her eyes flash with white. Gritting her teeth, she turned away from Jerris to her own small pony. Well then, let's get going. The mountains aren't getting any easier or closer. So with the various clans people waving at them from the bailey and walls, the scarlet wolves rode out with Ashime once more among them. I hope you've enjoyed this chapter of Weaver's Web. If you want to get your hands on an e or print edition of this novel, you can do so through my website, which is pjvallantine.net. On this podcast, you've heard Ghost Song by Hands Upon Black Earth, which is available through magnatune.com. All other music in this podcast is supplied by T. Morris. Find out more about T at tmorris.com. Thanks for listening.